Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Classical Meets Charlotte Mason by Shannon Whiteside, recorded at the 2021 Living Education Retreat. Two different women have influenced my educational philosophy for the past two decades. They were both from England, they were both born in the 1800s, and they were both devout Christians from the Anglican tradition. And they both might be surprised that thousands of students in America in the 21st century are following their educational models. They both thought that the current education of their day was lacking and could be improved. However, they proposed different solutions to the problems. I was actually introduced to these two women in the same year. I first encountered the name Dorothy Sayers in a book by Douglas Wilson titled Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. I was sitting in the library at Moody Bible Institute reading World Magazine when I came across a book review about this new book that presented a Christian school model that looked back to the past to answer the educational dilemmas of our day. I've always had a thing for antiques and old books, so it sounded interesting. I was an education major, but was struggling with the decision to become a teacher. I didn't want to teach at a public school because I knew it would be hard to not talk about God and act like he didn't exist. I was not exactly excited about teaching at a Christian school either, because I went to a Christian high school, and although I enjoyed my time there, I felt like it was mostly a Christian school because it had a Bible class, chapel, and there were Christian teachers. There was something missing, but I couldn't put my finger on it. This new kind of school, called a classical Christian school, was intriguing to me. As I read through Wilson's book, I was having a lot of aha moments. He seemed to address some of the pitfalls of the typical Christian schools. I was quickly convinced that this was the piece that was missing from my educational puzzle. Wilson acknowledged that many Christian schools are what he called baptized secularism. They just sprinkle in prayer, Bible class, and chapel over a secular curriculum and ideas. He believed that we needed to teach all subjects from a Christian worldview. But there was more that fascinated me about this model. There was a formula to teach to address the stages of children's learning. What really drew me to the model was the fact that students would really learn their stuff. I felt like when I graduated high school, I didn't really know a lot and felt like a fraud because nothing stuck in my head. I would cram for tests and forget most of it the next day. This idea of spending years memorizing the content seemed like more assurance that it might actually stick and these students could be the real deal when they graduate. That is where Dorothy Sayers comes into the picture. Wilson was basing his model for his school on an essay that Sayers wrote called The Lost Tools of Learning. Although she was most known for her detective models, she gave a lecture at Oxford in 1947 where she offered her advice about education. She didn't think the British children were getting the best education. She stated, is it not the great defect of our education today 
that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. So she said we must turn back the wheel of progress of four or five hundred years to the point at which education began to lose its true object towards the end of the Middle Ages. Even though she was not a teacher and did not have experience with children or degrees in child psychology or education, she proposed a new twist on the medieval trivium. The medieval trivium consisted of the subjects of grammar, logic, and rhetoric that students mastered until they went into the quadrivia, which was arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Instead of using the trivium as subjects, Sayers suggested that the trivium could be used as methods of teaching or pedagogies. She insisted that the trivium could be tools for learning any subject. And if they are simply tools, the content didn't really matter so much. Sayers stated, the contents of the syllabus at this stage may be anything you like. The subjects supply material, but they are all to be regarded as mere grist for the mental mill to work upon. So in the grammar stage, children gather the facts and data. Then the logic stage is where they learn to analyze and dissect arguments. And the rhetoric stage is where the students learn to communicate everything they have stored up in their minds. It made sense to me at the time and seemed to provide the solution to forgetfulness. Just stuff them full of facts that you practice regularly and they will leave school as walking Wikipedias. It wasn't presented in such a blunt manner. The phrases were more like recovering the lost tools of learning or repairing the runes. I was inspired to help the next generation acquire knowledge and wisdom. Throughout the years, Sayer's 20-page lecture was reprinted in the National Review several times. And this is where Douglas Wilson came across it while he was in the Navy. So when he and his wife decided to start a school for their daughter, he thought he would give Sayer's proposal a try and test out her theory of teaching the trivium as pedagogies and not as subjects. He tried it at Logos School in Moscow, Idaho, and the kids seemed to thrive. It worked. So others heard about this idea, and the Association of Classical Christian Schools began. Now, I didn't know that this was the history of the school, and that Wilson started the school with a wing and a prayer. I thought it was based on the actual classical method of learning that our forefathers had. I didn't know that I was actually following the suggestions of a detective writer from England who threw out some untested theories at a lecture. I also didn't realize that originally, Douglas Wilson only added the word classical to the motto of his school to distinguish it from a fundamental Christian school. I didn't really question it at the time. That was the party line. The trivium consisted of grammar, logic, and rhetoric and was a method for teaching students. That is the way children learn and we are cutting with the grain. Despite Sayers' admission that the reform she proposed would ever be carried into effect, the classical movement exploded. There was definitely a need at that time to make Christian schooling more rigorous and intellectual, and this idea of the classical Christian school seemed to fit the bill. Now let me tell you 
how I heard about the other English woman. She had some educational ideas of her own. After I graduated college, I was hired to be the third grade teacher at a classical school, and all the teachers went to a conference to learn about this method of teaching. There was a session about a woman named Charlotte Mason. It was actually a session about Mason's theological beliefs. I honestly don't remember why I attended that workshop. I do enjoy learning about theology, and so the title intrigued me. I also wanted to make sure I didn't get mixed up with anyone that didn't have solid beliefs. The speaker wanted to expose us to the unbiblical views of this English woman from long ago. <laughs> I remember her saying that Mason believed that children are not born either good or bad, but with possibilities for good and for bad. The speaker believed that this statement meant that Mason did not believe in the sin nature of children. She also said that Mason's methods relied on the curiosity and hunger for knowledge that children naturally have. And therefore, Mason's methods don't rely on grades, rewards, and other motivations and makes the teacher practically unnecessary. <laughs> I was all about the teacher-centered classroom, so I thought that was an odd idea for a teacher to hand over so much of the learning to the students. I left the workshop wondering where this woman got her ideas and chalked it up to the Victorians and their other strange beliefs, such as using leeches to suck blood and making jewelry from the hair of their deceased loved ones. <laughs> I'm sad to say I did not investigate any more of Mason's writings at that time and instead followed the educational practices that were inspired by Dorothy Sayers for the next decade. It would be a long road back to Mason. For the next 10 years, I was involved with the Christian classical school movement, first as a teacher and then as a board member. Since I taught mostly third through fifth grade, my focus was on to get the facts into their heads. The more information they had in their minds, the more pegs they had to hang future information on. We would have a memory time where the students would stand up for 15 to 20 minutes and we would go over a list of history facts, timeline songs, Latin declensions, grammar definitions, states and capitals, and Bible verses. I thought that one day those facts would be valuable. For the present moment, it was a way to show off their knowledge and impress their parents. Teacher beliefs are a big part of understanding the dynamics of a class. What you believe about the nature of the learner, the role of the teacher, and the goal of education will play out in your methods. These beliefs become a filter for how we interpret different methods and ideas that come our way. Many Christian educators affirm that they believe children are made in the image of God, but when it comes to learning, they don't apply that standard to their teaching practices. When I was a classical teacher, I adhered to the metaphors that students were like sponges and vessels to be filled. I wasn't purposely trying to be little children, but I viewed them as not capable of thinking on their own and needing an adult to tell them what to think. With those metaphors in mind, I centered my teaching practices around getting information in their minds. It was justified for a higher goal. I was told they would use this information later when they could analyze and express themselves. I was building a solid foundation. I felt this urgency to cover the important stuff. History, Bible, grammar, math. 
I didn't have time for poetry, for art, for listening to music, for handicrafts. These views of the learner are prevalent across the classical Christian school world. I recently watched a video on the Association of Classical Christian Schools website explaining the classical model, and one of the teachers talks about the grammar stage and the rationale for memory work. She states, when you are younger, all you can really do is memorize. You can't really put things together. Her beliefs about the nature of the learner are limiting her methods. When I hear those statements, I think about all the teachers who missed the opportunities to hear the thoughts of young children because they did not think they were capable. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus thought that young children had a lot of insight to offer us older folks about humility and dependence on our heavenly Father. The problem is when you silence a young child, it's hard to just turn it on when you think they're ready. And that's one of the problems that the teachers were seeing at the classical school. For so many years, we just filled their minds with things we wanted them to know, and then we asked them for their opinion. It was hard for them to change gears. They had not been developing their independent thinking or verbalizing their thoughts, and therefore they were dependent on the teacher for the right answers. I was always looking for a new way to teach the information since there wasn't really a method for teaching besides getting the facts in. How can I make this more interesting? I would go to the conferences or read an article and the philosophy sounded intriguing, but when it came to the classroom, I didn't feel like I was doing anything different or special. It was basically read, review, test, and repeat. That old feeling that something is missing was stirring in my heart. I became dissatisfied with that model and did not see a direct connection from theory to practice. I also wanted an educational model that respected the individuality of the child. Some of the thoughts were stirring in my mind because I became a mother and stopped teaching. I realized that my children were capable of thinking and had a great imagination, and I didn't want to cram information in them, but wanted them to blossom as individuals. When I thought about homeschooling my own children, the idea of having them reciting facts over and over did not sound appealing or motivating. Sure, it was impressive to hear students go on and on with their litany of facts, but when I look back at my time as a teacher, I underestimated the abilities of children by treating them like sponges. And by treating them as passive recipients of knowledge, they also started to see themselves that way. And some were hesitant to answer open-ended questions because they were afraid to give the wrong answer. I also saw that students weren't able a lot of the time to transfer the rote facts to the context of the classroom. They would memorize grammar rules, but not necessarily use those rules in their writing. I also saw the older kids resenting memorizing because it was no longer fun to say things over and over. That appeal wears off pretty quickly. Also, a lot of what they were memorizing was supposed to be useful for them in the future when they enter the next stages of the trivium and can discuss those facts and hopefully make connections. However, is that fair to a child to educate them only for the future and not focus on a full life for them right now? I continued on my journey to find a better educational model. I began to dig deeper to find the reasons why people advocated the memorization of facts when kids were in the grammar stage, 
even when they don't understand what they're memorizing or have context for the facts? Is there research that supports this? And is this exactly what was done in classical schools throughout the centuries? And if it was, is there still a reason to carry on these methods to the 21st century? There's only a limited amount of time each day. And do I want my kids to be spending my time doing that? Honestly, as a parent, I did not want to be doing that either. These questions were nagging at me, and I googled homeschool philosophies, and that name came up. The name that I hadn't heard in 10 years, Charlotte Mason. Why were all these people following her methods? Isn't she the one who denies original sin? <laughs> I don't remember what I read about Mason that day, but it was enough to make me sign up for an upcoming conference to find out more. It was actually at that conference where Art did a session addressing Mason's theological beliefs. I was relieved to know that Mason did not only have orthodox beliefs, but her educational theories were based on the teaching of Christ. I felt like I had found an oasis after wandering in the desert. Now this is a woman who really knew children. It is almost as if she got inside the mind of children to view education from their perspective. It was as if a student finally had the opportunity to say, don't tell me what to think, don't make me repeat your ideas, I am starving for knowledge. Mason's method seemed too good to be true. Was this possible? Is there a way of education where children are the active learners, where they are not told what to think? where they are not motivated by tests and grades, it was revolutionary to me. Almost everything I thought about education was turned upside down. I had a complete paradigm shift. It was not about preparing them for the future, but enjoying the present. It is not about filling their minds, but engaging their bodies and hearts. The pieces of the puzzle came together. I parted ways with my old companion of 10 years and said hello to a new one on my educational journey. My metaphors were changed. I came to understand that a child is a person and born with intellectual power, moral sense, and spiritual perception. My teacher beliefs were altered. I had a new filter to understand teaching and learning. Once my question was, what information can I get into the students' minds? Now my questions became, do these books contain living ideas for my students to think upon? And does this lesson allow my students to do the work? Several years after I'd been implementing Mason's methods with my children, I began hearing about people who said that they were teaching their children using both classical and Charlotte Mason methods. People were claiming that there were similarities between Mason and classical, and those two methods go together like two peas in a pod. I always wondered what the impetus was for bringing Mason and classical together. I don't know for sure, but I think that the classical world needed some softening at the edges. The rigor, the memory work, the focus on Latin was starting to lose steam with 21st century children, and Mason brought that joy of learning back to the mix. My opinion was that there was an identity crisis in the classical education world. They realized that the memory work was too heavy-handed, children weren't loving the memorization, and for many children, it was too rigorous and hard. 
After I started learning about Mason, I knew that I wanted to share these ideas with future teachers. So I enrolled in grad school so I could become a professor and share Mason's insights with college students. When it was time to find a school to conduct my research for my thesis, I thought it would be great to find a school that used narration. I actually found one that was not far from my home. The interesting twist was that they called themselves a hybrid model that combined classical and Charlotte Mason. The administrators at the school viewed Mason as a classical educator, so combining the two philosophies made sense to them. They knew they were a unique model, but they believed they were combining the best of both worlds. I wasn't really sure how that would play out in the classroom, but I was willing to suspend judgment until I can observe it for myself. I observed and recorded history and literature classes over several months. I also interviewed the principal, dean, the classroom teacher, and the students. The school was committed to narration as the primary method of learning. They followed a similar model as Mason proposed. They would begin most classes with a recap. They would read, narrate, and then have discussion. The teacher would not interrupt the narrations, and the students were quite impressive in their narrations. However, as I sat in the classroom observing and recording the narrations and speaking with the adult participants, I noticed a dissonance between the principles of Mason as I understood them from her writings and the way the participants of the school interpreted them. The narration seemed monotone, rigid, and told without much enthusiasm. The students didn't seem to be engaged with their books. My experience with my children and those from my co-op are quite different. I asked myself, what was missing in the atmosphere of this school that would make narration lifeless and unengaging? I had to look deeper into this. I could no longer exclusively focus on the narration as an isolated component of the curriculum, but needed to see how their educational philosophies were affecting their narration. I basically had to get below the surface and not just analyze the narrations in class discussion, but I needed to know what the teachers, administrators, and students believed about their learning process. I want to tell you about three areas I found that differed from Mason's principles. I also want to talk about what differences that makes in this practice of narration. The first thing I noticed has to do with the purpose and goal of narration. I didn't recognize it right away, but I soon realized that the teacher instructed the students to retell the text in the author's words. The students were to imitate the author's language, sequence, details, and length. I want to show you a dialogue between the teacher and students about the purpose of narration. So here's how this discussion played out. I asked the students the question, if you had to describe narration to someone else, what would you say? A girl named Abby said, in class, we read a portion of whatever book we're reading, then our teacher asks us to close it and calls on someone to orally sort of repeat in your own words what we just read. And then a boy named Caleb added, but you are trying to use the author's language and have good detail. And then the teacher said, let's go back to this idea, the ideal narration. We have Caleb saying it's the language of the author. Then we have this term, your own words. What is the ideal narration, the teacher asked. Megan said, the author's language. 
the teacher looked at Abby and said, so what do you mean when you say your own words? Abby replied, if we read a long portion of something like what we just read, we wouldn't be able to repeat it exactly in our own words. But if it said the storm was tremendous, if you remember, you could use the word tremendous. And then Caleb added, but you want to make sure you know what the word means, because if you don't understand it based on the context, then there's almost no point of using that word. Well, there is, because it's remembering something from the text. That conversation reinforced my observations that something was amiss during narration. If students are striving to reach this ideal text of getting as close to the author's words as possible, there's a different process going on in their minds. It is more like memory work and less like assimilating a text through one's own perspective and understanding. Mason required a narration to be in the words of the student because she believed that was the only way that the information from the author became knowledge and true learning happened. That is why the narration seemed rigid and monotone at times. In this school, it was not about bringing one's individuality and personality to the retelling, but more about a reading comprehension exercise. However, I did love how Abby was the lone voice who understood the true nature of narration. To her, narration didn't make sense if you were copying the author. Later in my discussion with the students, I asked if they thought narration affected their interest in a subject. And this is what Abby said. Maybe before you read a book about Greece, you are like, oh, Greece, it's a country. Let's read about it. <laughs> After you read the book, maybe you will be more knowledgeable and will say, ah, Greece. She was confirming the importance of the science of relations. And what was so fascinating about Abby was that her understanding of narration made her narrations the most dynamic. She was enthusiastic, added dialogue, added touches of originality. She made it a storytelling performance, and she seemed to enjoy herself in the process. Another area where I noticed dissonance between Mason and the school was the way that ideas factor into the learning process. The school believed that ideas were necessary for the students and strived to choose living books. However, the educators did not indicate that narration was the means by which students processed ideas. They pointed to the discussion afterwards as the time to engage with the ideas. For them, narration was the time when the facts were addressed and put into long-term memory. The teacher told me, you don't ever want to leave it with just reading and narrating. There needs to be some kind of discussion, some kind of response for that learning to take seed in their brains and in their hearts. And when I asked the dean about this discussion time, he said, ideally, we dealt with the facts sufficiently in the narration. So now we want to explore the ideas in the discussion. However, there are two differences in Mason's view of ideas. Narration is where students assimilate the ideas as well as the facts, and the ideas that are assimilated need to be left up to each student. The educators at the school believed it was their role to bring out the ideas in the books and have the students form opinions about those topics during the discussion time. Narration is not simply a reading comprehension exercise to cover the facts in a book, 
But Mason believed that during narration, the ideas or the food of the mind were being assimilated and becoming part of the students. The discussion afterwards might be a fruitful time of processing ideas as well. But as Mason states, this telling shows that a spiritual process has taken place. Something new, some little touch of originality, some quaint expression shows that spontaneous mental activity has been set up. If the school insists that narration is the fact part, they miss out on the beauty of narration and the life-giving practice it is. They also miss out on the ideas that are being formed through the students' retelling. They won't look for it because they are just listening for the facts. The third area where I saw dissonance between Mason and the school was the means by which moral opinions were formed. The educators believed it was their role to bring out the ideas in the text and have the students form opinions about those topics during the discussion time. In the classroom where I observed, all the discussion questions focused on the character traits and the vices and virtues of people from ancient Greece and Rome. The discussion time was never open-ended, and the students would discuss only the ideas the teacher brought out. Mason advised teachers to be especially careful with issues of morality in the classroom. And children are not to be fed morally, she said, like young pigeons with pre-digested food. They must pick and eat for themselves, and they do so from the conduct of others which they hear of or perceive. The irony of the situation is that the school wanted to make sure students developed moral opinions. However, it is through narrations that students have a chance to display their moral opinions if they are given a chance to use their own words. The wonderful thing about narration is that it is a story and stories or narratives are always told from a point of view. Stories always show us some picture of the world and what is wrong and right in that world. In other words, stories are not morally neutral. Storytellers take moral stances in their retellings of a story or narrative. A moral stance is a disposition towards what is good or valuable and how one ought to live in the world. These are not necessarily obvious at first glance, or that would probably ruin a good story. I know Mason did not want children reading books that were moralistic and preachy. In the same way, a narrator is not going to lay out what they think of each character in an obvious way, such as this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. So how do storytellers reveal these moral stances in their narrations? by the characters and events they choose to highlight or leave out, by the words and phrases they repeat, we can get to see their moral stance. Basically, a storyteller wants the listener to feel a certain way about a character. As I analyze the students' narrations, I would look for their moral stance and the way they would show sympathy towards certain characters and antipathy or aversion to other characters. In this process of narration, the students are forming their opinions of the events and characters. And these moral stances are tentative and fluid. It happens naturally and in the moment. I don't consider these to be their final evaluation of the characters. How could they be? They are still developing in their understanding of history and their understanding of themselves as moral beings. But these are beginning stages of wrestling with these events, these characters, these vices and virtues that are a part of us. 
It is a more organic and natural way to form moral opinions than to simply list out the vices and virtues of a character. I mentioned earlier that teachers' beliefs play out in the classroom. What teachers believe about the nature of the learner, the role of the teacher, and the goal of education will come through the classroom practice. And these beliefs serve as filters for interpreting our educational practices. I believe that the classical educational theory was the filter for interpreting Mason's principles at the school. Narration is not a neutral tool. There are principles behind it, so that it is a living method that gives agency to the students. If it is used with a heavy hand, it can become a burden and a way to enforce a teacher's agenda. Students want freedom of thought. When I asked my 15-year-old daughter about narration and her thoughts about it, she said, when we read, we see it only from the author's perspective. But when we narrate something, then we can put it into our own words and make the knowledge our own. And we get to see it through our eyes, and it makes us part of the learning experience, rather than just reading about the author's experience. And she said, you want to allow students to have independent thinking. Even if you indoctrinate them in a sneaky way, <laughs> they don't like it. <laughs> we are stubborn creatures, she said. <laughs> we want to come to our own opinion on our own time. The classical model seeks to mold and shape students into a specific direction toward the goal of virtue. The classical impulse to pattern students' thoughts and ideas toward a particular direction was evidenced in the classroom. Narration was used as a means to conform the thoughts and words of the students into those of the authors. There was an ideal, the text, that each student was to strive towards. The discussion after the narration was also a means of conveying particular ideas that the students were to get out of the reading. Whereas Mason used narration as a means for students to develop their personality, form their own opinions, and assimilate ideas that were meaningful to them, the classical model does not place the same value on the agency of the learner. The classical model does not place the same value on self-education. As you can see, there is tension that lies between these two educational paradigms. In many ways, the school took the rigid model of classical education and tried to fit Mason's principles inside of that framework. Narration that aimed to capture the personality of the students turned into retelling based on the author's language. The student-led discussion turned into an opportunity for the teacher to incorporate their ideas about the text. And books full of ideas that students should assimilate according to their needs became texts that must be submitted to by the students and teachers. What got lost in the translation from Mason to classical was the agency of the students, the development of their personality as they choose or reject ideas, and the relational understanding of knowledge as something to know and care about. They started with the foundation of classical education, added Mason's principles, and now have this hybrid model. Mason started with the nature and potentiality of children and built her curricula and methods around their needs, their potentials, their potential, and their capable minds. 
Her ideas align more with the progressive education principles that value children as individuals, view children as natural doers, makers, and creators, and believe education should be designed to reflect the nature of the child. By starting with the child and not the curriculum, she put the child at the center of the learning process. She followed the path of progressive teachers and thinkers before her and added on to their work. In her biography by Margaret Coombs, Mrs. Coombs states, Rousseau's Amile's early exploration of the natural world and Pestalozian respect for children's personalities taught her that education depended upon engaging their imagination, curiosity, and interest in things. Wordsworth, Arnold, and Ruskin inspired her to pass on her love of literature, pictures, and poetry. She never considered her model a continuation of the classical method of learning or a different avenue to reach a classical education. So how can this school be faithful to Mason's principles and classical education when in essence they are different in their ideological stances, their discourses, their understanding of knowledge, and their understanding of the nature of the learner? I don't believe that these two models can be combined. I believe they're based on different assumptions. And people who think that Mason based her principles off of the classical model of education are not looking at the strong emphasis she placed on the role of the learner to think for themselves, to come to their own conclusions, to make their own moral opinions, and to show their own individuality. That was never a sign of classical education. That is a hallmark of progressive education. The ultimate distinction between progressive principles and traditional education was the view of the child. According to Knight, progressive education is the process of education that finds its genesis and purpose in the child. Whereas the traditional approach started with a body of organized subject matter and then enforced that on the students, the progressives reversed this model and developed a curriculum and teaching methods based on students' needs, interests, and initiatives. The question that I continue to ponder is why do classical educators want to claim Mason as their own and not acknowledge that she was a progressive educator? Here are some of my thoughts about that, and I'd love to hear yours as well. Many Christian educators view progressive educational theories as antithetical to Christian education. In fact, during my research at the school, I sat in on the curriculum night when the dean was speaking to the parents. The title of his talk was, Why a Christian Education Must be Classical. He stated that the goal of education is wisdom, and wisdom involved the knowledge of truth, the love of goodness, and the savoring of beauty. He claimed that the modern education began with a radical break from this tradition and instead embraced feelings and preferences over traditional values. He continued with his critique of progressive education and said, the rise of progressive education became linked to the neglect of basic academics and a tendency toward destructive permissiveness. Confidence in the natural goodness and wisdom of children led to a reduction of adult restraint and discipline in classrooms. This understanding of classical education is the only true choice for a Christian education may explain why they think Mason is classical. 
Mason believed in objective truth. She valued truth, goodness, and beauty. She must be classical. However, many of the early progressive educators were religious as well, like Cominius, Pestalozzi, and Froebel. Mason was able to discard the educational principles that did not align with her religious beliefs, but still embrace the progressive emphasis on children's needs and personhood. For many Christian educators, a model of education that puts the child at the center of the learning process is associated with progressivism and secularism. For Mason, putting the needs and capabilities of the child in the center is following the model that Jesus commanded to not hinder, not despise. It is not a surprise that people want to pick and choose Mason's methods. She addressed this issue in a booklet sent out to those who inquired to be part of the PNEU schools. The following was written, those who do not regard education as a vital whole, but as a sort of conglomerate of good ideas, good plans, traditions, and experiences, do well to adopt and adapt any good idea they come across. Therefore, every plan rises out of a principle, and each such principle is a part of a living educational philosophy and does not very well bear to be broken off and used by itself. Narration, for example, which is to us a no more than simple, natural way of expression, giving habit of clear and consecutive speech, might easily become the dead mechanical exercise, which has been imparted from elsewhere, designed to teach all sorts of things, vocabulary, composition, and so on. Mason recognized that narration could become mechanical if it was not part of the full understanding of the philosophy. A misapplication of her theories may lead to the opposite effect of what she desired. Although narration was still beneficial for some students at the school, it seemed to be a mechanical exercise. The students were not reaping the benefits they could and were not awakened to the touch of knowledge. That is why I think it is important for people to see that Charlotte Mason and classical education are not compatible. If people assume that Mason is classical, they will most likely not read her volumes and just interpret her practices through their classical filter. They might apply nature study or picture study or use narration in some capacity, but they will not realize the revolution in education she brought about. They will not have that paradigm shift. I want everyone to have the opportunity to meet my dear friend and mentor, Charlotte Mason. She is a great companion to have on my journey. Thank you. To view the slides referenced in this audio presentation, please visit the show notes page. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.